Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition and intellectual life more broadly. You have self-censorship because of the fear that people will be labeled on social media as racists or bigots or haters or bad people or for having what we used to call politically incorrect views or not being woke or you know, the language changes. It can be every bit as toxic to freedom of speech as government repression. On this episode, I speak to Robert P. George, McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. We talk about the problem of intellectual conformity and free speech on university campuses and how these problems spill over to broader American society. We also talk about Professor George's ideas for confronting this problem. I hope you enjoy the conversation. George, thank you very much for joining the Keeping It Civil podcast. It's my very great pleasure to be on. Thank you for inviting me. I understand you were here in Tempe earlier this month to give the Constitution Day lecture. It was a very great honor, and it was wonderful to see all that's happening at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership. It's a very exciting program, and I was glad to be part of it. I did want to ask you about that. This isn't your first visit to Arizona State and to the school, is it? No. A few years ago, I think just about the time the school was being founded, I had the pleasure of being out there with my teaching partner and beloved friend, Cornell West. And uh, Professor West and I did a public dialogue out there, and that was a great occasion as well. Yeah. um, So what do you make of the progress of the school through the years? It's growing in terms of majors and its uh, intellectual and research output. Have you been following it closely? I have indeed, and I think it's just fantastic. And here I really have to commend Paul Carice, Professor Paul Carice, for his uh, leadership. I knew at the time uh, that he was hired, he had previously been at the Air Force Academy, I knew that he was a great hire, so I expected great things. And we got them, we got great things, we got a great program, a growing program. Of course, he hired some wonderful talent. Uh, I probably shouldn't start mentioning names because there's so many and I'll leave some out, but I, I do want to give a shout out to Professor Karen Taliaferro. Like Professor Carice, Professor Taliaferro is a former fellow of my program at Princeton, the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. So I knew her as I knew Professor Carice very well, and they have more than lived up to my highest expectations. What a great job. But really, everyone out there at the school is doing a great job. Arizona State can be very, very proud of what it's done here. So the schedule, as we call it, the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership was set up about five or six years ago, I believe. But I have learned that similar institutions are being set up at quite a few public universities across the country. Is that is that right? Are you involved with those efforts at all? That is correct. And I am involved with uh, with several of them. Schedule is the model. It was the pioneer. It showed that it could be done and it showed how to do it. It's been followed now by the University of Tennessee, their flagship Knoxville uh, campus. The University of North Carolina uh, has a program uh, modeled on schedule and they're building a much bigger uh, program. Uh, The University of Florida has a great new program called the Hamilton Program, modeled on uh, the schedule at Arizona State. And now Ohio State is uh, launching its own, it's building its own. And it will be at several campuses, although the flagship will be at the flagship institution, Ohio State University. So it's very exciting. You do something right, people notice, people want to emulate it, and that's what's happening here. 
So how would you sum up the mission of these new schools or academic units across these public universities? What is the mission and how do they differ from the existing units at the universities? The mission, as I uh, see it, and I think Skettle is fulfilling it magisterially, is exposing young men and women, students, to the best that has been thought and said on issues of civic life across the centuries and indeed the millennia, uh, exposing students that the best that has been thought and said, for example, by the ancient Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, by Roman thinkers such as Cicero, by the great medieval scholars such as Thomas Aquinas, by the great figures of the Reformation, by the great figures of the Enlightenment, by the American founders. It's helping our students to understand the foundations of civic life, the challenges of civic life. And in particular, because we're Americans, these programs are helping students to understand the principles of Republican government, the constitutional order that we have here in the United States. And that's important because we want our young men and women to be good citizens, good citizens of a democratic republic. And that means they need to know how systems like this work and how they are preserved and sometimes how they're lost so that we can avoid the tragedy of uh, losing what we now call our democracy, what our founders would have uh, preferred to call our republic. That is government that's not only of the people, which all government is, government of the people, and not only for the people, which all good government is, even if it's government by a benign despot. But that thing, government by the people, (laughs) republican government, government in which we all participate, James Madison famously said that only a well-instructed people could be permanently a free people. And by well-instructed, he didn't mean exclusively instructed in the principles of Republican civic life, but he certainly put the accent on understanding the principles of Republican civic life because he knew that to be a self-governing people, you need to know the constitutional system, understand it, appreciate it if you are to play your proper role. Madison understood as well as anybody ever has understood that republicanism, democracy as we now call it, is fragile. It's hard to establish and it's easily lost once it's established. Most republics throughout history have uh, failed. And when they failed, they've collapsed often into the very worst forms of tyranny. Now, if we're going to avoid the failure of our democratic republic, our citizens are going to have to understand and appreciate the principles of Republican government, of our democratic civic life. And it's the task, the mission of institutions like Skettle and those modeled on it to play an important instructive role there, to make sure that our people are indeed, as Madison said, a well-instructed people uh, and therefore can be a permanently free people. So why do you think that Madison would look upon the economics and sociology and political science departments that already exist at every university across uh, America and say that they're not providing the sort of instruction that young Americans need. It seems to me that a lot of these themes that you are talking about, democratic stability, the origins of democracy, the virtues of democracy, all these things are covered by a lot of mainstream political scientists, economists, I mean, to be honest, uh, people like myself. So why do you think that there's a need to set up these separate units that study the specific sort of canon of American thought and related thought rather than simply keeping on with the units that have been doing this for a very long time? 
Well, certainly there are departments of political science and economics and uh, history all over the country who are doing a great job. Not all are doing a great job, but many are doing a great job. Um, but uh, that didn't mean that some years ago it wasn't uh, useful and valuable to establish a, a new school, a school of public and international affairs. For a long time, it was called the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. It provided some focus on the specific issues of public policy and international affairs that are covered in, for example, the Department of Politics here, but aren't a central focus. And by the same token, 23 years ago, we established the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, not because the Department of Politics was doing a bad job or the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, as it then was, was doing a poor job, but to provide more resources, more focus on foundational questions, on uh, the basic questions of uh, what constitutes Republican government? What jeopardizes constitutional Republican government? Uh, how do you preserve constitutional Republican government? It's not that you're trying to replace something that's being done badly. It's that you're trying to add to what's already being done and especially to add something in a more focused way. And this uh, or involvement or support that you've been giving to these sorts of units across the country really seems to me fits nicely with a lot of the more public-facing work you've been doing for many years around themes of sort of intellectual pluralism and free speech on campus. And I'm just wondering, how long have you been involved in pushing for that sort of thing, involved in this sort of activism? And was there a catalyzing event that got you interested in that to sort of bring you away from your purely scholarly research and to try and push for these sorts of um, uh, agendas on university campuses? Well, I uh, was interested in the philosophy of civil liberties from the beginning. Really, as an undergraduate, I became interested in that. Uh, what are the moral foundations of uh, basic principles of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, the right to petition government, due process of law, equal protection of the laws, and so forth? Because of my interest in those subjects, I went on to law school and then over to Oxford to do my doctorate in philosophy of law. My very first book called Making Men Moral, Civil Liberties, and Public Morality was an effort to explain why I was dissatisfied with the what were in those days the most prominent basic liberal approaches to identifying and defending principles of civil liberty. And I proposed an alternative, what uh, this is a technical term, a perfectionist theory of civil liberties, which contrasted with the famously anti-perfectionist theory of civil liberties that had been adumbrated and wide, uh, by John Rawls, the great Harvard uh, political philosopher John Rawls, and had been widely adopted. Rawls was an extraordinarily influential scholar, and he really dominated political theory in the early part of my career and for many years thereafter. So I've been interested in these issues for a long time. In 1993, out of the blue, with no efforts on my own part, I was reached out to by the Georgia H.W. Bush administration and asked if I would like to take a seat on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. I had not been involved in public affairs in any way similar to that before, but because of my interest in civil rights and civil liberties, I accepted the president's nomination. So suddenly I was thrust into the field of public affairs and specifically on civil rights and civil liberties issues where I was able to see in practice how things looked when it came to issues that I had explored in theory for some time before that. 
And I guess I, I never then withdrew back purely into the academy. I remained involved in public debate of these issues ever since. And in 2002, I guess, I was appointed to the President's Council on Bioethics. So, and, and although the field there was bioethics, it certainly touched on a number of civil liberties, uh, civil rights and civil liberties issues. And then in 2012, I was appointed to a position and, and then became chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, again, a central civil liberties topic. I also, I suppose, about that same time in that period coming out of the 2000 aughts, I began to be really concerned about the pressures on free speech on campus, not just my own campus, actually not especially my own campus. We had our issues, but there were places where it seemed to me that free speech was being stifled and that, that students and faculty, not just younger faculty, faculty more broadly, were engaging in self-censorship. They weren't um, speaking their minds or weren't speaking their minds boldly about issues because they feared the consequences. I guess I began to perceive what came to be known as cancel culture emerging. So I started to think about that and write about that and become involved, including in organizations and in founding organizations that would protect freedom of speech. So what were the specific types of issues that people were uncomfortable talking about on campus back then? Or, or what were the sorts of controversies or debates or conflicts that first really caught your attention and got you focused on this issue of free speech on campus? It was the hot buttons, uh, so-called social issues, where clearly there was a dominant view on things such as um, marriage and sexual morality, sexuality, race, gender, those types of issues. Dissent from the dominant position, which in my experience previously had been more freely expressed, now people were less free, <laughs> less, uh, less willing. Uh, even my students in, in, in classes or my younger colleagues or even some of my more senior colleagues started to appear, at least to me, to be less willing to raise questions uh, or express dissent than they previously had been. So I asked myself that classic question from the old Buffalo Springfield song, you know, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. And I want to know what it was. So that's how I ended up getting involved in it. And would you say since then that things have gotten better or worse for free speech on campus? Because there's certainly, I think, a perception, right? Yeah, they became worse uh, 2016, 2017. Then um, things really broke out into the open. Uh, there, were, there were some important moments there, obviously. The George Floyd uh, episode, killing of George Floyd, and the reaction to that, the terrible thing that happened at Middlebury College when Charles Murray and the woman who was debating him, a member of the faculty there, Professor Allison Stanger, were physically attacked, physically assaulted by a mob who objected to Murray's presence on the campus. I, I later got to know Professor Stanger. I, I didn't know her at the time. I did get to know her. She's an international relations scholar. And it turns out that she suffered a concussion from which it took her two years to recover. This was a serious act of violence, simply in an effort to stifle speech on campus. In March of 2017, if I'm recalling correctly, Cornell West and I, in response to that episode, 
released a statement entitled Truth Seeking Democracy and Freedom of Thought and Expression. Yes, yes, I, re I read it. It was signed by about 5,000 faculty and students from around the country and others associated with uh, universities around the country trying to ring the alarm and say, look, you know, we, we're going to have to get ourselves back on track here. If we're going to, if our universities are going to fulfill their mission as truth-seeking, knowledge-advancing institutions, we need free speech. We need people to, to be free and feel free to speak their minds about things, even if speaking their minds about things upsets other people, unsettles other people, even if other people think that their ideas are wicked or unjust or offensive or harmful. And I think about the same time, or maybe shortly thereafter, we had the first of what became a series of protests here at Princeton when disability rights activists came and protested, some of them in their wheelchairs, chaining themselves to the gates of Princeton University, the front gates, protesting the presence on our faculty of Professor Peter Singer, uh, the famous uh, utilitarian uh, philosopher because uh, Professor uh, Singer has certain very controversial ideas of what constitutes a person. In his view, which is a view I myself radically reject, you need a certain level of cognitive functioning in order to qualify as a person with dignity and whose interests, I should say, need to be taken into account in doing a utilitarian calculation. I'm a critic not only of his views about personhood, I'm also a critic of his utilitarianism generally. But although I'm a critic, I'm also a defender of free speech. And so uh, I uh, published an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper defending Professor Singer's rights to free speech against the disability rights protesters who were demanding that he be fired, that his tenure be, be revoked. I think they went wrong in trying to silence him, trying to shut down his speech, trying to punish him, and even have him excluded from the faculty because he held a view that they, in my opinion, rightly, found to be morally wrong. When you think back about your your own education, you studied in the UK and, and in Britain, do you think that was the way things should be, that we have to get back to some sort of an ideal of uh, really open and pretty frank and potentially very contentious debate on campus? Or did this problem already exist on campuses when you were a, a young student? Oh, I can't say that our campuses were ever free from this problem. You know, certainly the American university record going all the way back has not been great on free speech issues. If we go back to uh, Woodrow Wilson's uh, presidency and his violations of free speech rights, including of university professors, universities did not distinguish themselves in standing by their professors against the assaults on free speech coming from uh, the administration in Washington, D.C. Similarly, in the 1950s, uh, professors who were accused, sometimes truly, sometimes falsely, of having communist sympathies or being members of the Communist Party, their free speech rights were attacked by Joseph McCarthy and others, and uh, uh, not all universities <laughs> distinguished themselves in standing up for their professors' free speech against government intrusion. What I think might be a little different in my own lifetime is that um, so often the violations of free speech and the threats to free speech, the pressure against free speech is not coming from government, not coming from the outside. It's coming from within the university. It's coming from the establishment of a kind of uh, orthodoxy, ideological dogmas on campus 
that people are then uh, frightened, sometimes with very good reason, frightened to defy in any way or even to question in any serious way. And then with the advent of social media, and this is especially true for students and younger faculty, uh, you have self-censorship because of the fear that people will be labeled on social media as racists or bigots or haters or bad people or for having what we used to call politically incorrect views or not being woke or, you know, the language changes. It can be every bit as toxic to freedom of speech and therefore to the truth-seeking mission of the university as government repression of free speech. John Stuart Mill famously and rightly made this point in the second chapter of his great work on liberty, the chapter entitled of Liberty of Thought and and discussion. He warned that it's not just the government we have to worry about here. And in some ways, the even greater threat is from the tyranny of public opinion, the tyranny of the mob mentality, the tyranny of groupthink, the tyranny of conformism. So do you advise your students and graduate students and junior faculty not to be on social media? Uh, no, I advise them to speak their minds. Even on social media? Even on social media. Oh, well, there From you the go. beginning. Uh, so I'm notorious for this. <laughs> you can ask my students. And it's advice that never is welcome, <laughs> especially among my graduate students who aspire to academic careers, of course, my doctoral students. They don't want to hear this. This is not the advice they want. The, the advice they want to hear is the advice they most often get you know, from their friends and from their families and sometimes from other professors, which is lay low, keep your head down. Avoid writing on controversial topics. Don't say anything publicly that rocks the boat, at least until you get a job, or at least until you get tenure, or at least until you get promoted to full professor. And I, I tell my students, if you get into that mode of thinking, pretty soon you'll spend your whole life and you'll be retiring before you've ever spoken your mind on an, on an issue. But is it necessary to speak your mind on social media? I mean, I, I myself am incredibly no, no, dubious about the utility of spending any time whatsoever on Twitter or Facebook or, or any well, that's of those platforms. Well, uh, that's a different issue. But if you're on those social – I, I myself use social media, so you and I are in different places on that. But And you said that um, you weren't technologically savvy, and here you are. You're more a man of the 21st century than I am, <laughs> Professor Jeff. Yeah. Well, I, I can, I can push – I can push – a couple of buttons, and that's about the most I can do. <laughs> but I can push the buttons that get me into trouble for saying very controversial things. On I wasn't going to say it. So I wasn't going to say it. To get myself into a mess. I wasn't going to say it, Professor George. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, if you're on social media, no matter where you are, if you're in a classroom, if you're uh, in the faculty lounge, if you're having dinner with students as their guest in the dining hall or whatever, I think it's important for you to be willing to speak your mind. Now, I think it's also very important for you to let other people speak their minds and let them challenge you, especially your students. Now, some faculty members, the, the great historian Gordon Wood, for example, is very careful never to state a political opinion, not because he fears consequences, but because he, he doesn't want uh, he explained this at a conference here at Princeton just this past May. He explained that he avoids having a public profile on political issues because people will then read his scholarship with that in right. mind. Don't think he was biased. That he's been he's been biased. Yeah. And I respect that. Now, if that's your if that's your reason for keeping your mouth shut on controversial issues, uh, that's okay. That, I get I get that. Hey, that's assuming that uh, anyone actually reads fear. your scholarship, Professor George. So that only applies to a tiny sliver of the academy anyway. Now I wanted to ask, because you've touched on several different kind of drivers here of this culture on campus or this ideological conformity from all the way from a sort of a 
I mean, I think you did suggest that there are a set of ideas that are hegemonic on university campuses that don't get challenged very often. But you also suggest that perhaps events like the election of Donald Trump and other things have played a major role in catalyzing or creating the situation. But then you also suggested that maybe social media is playing a major role. So if you had to say, what are the key drivers to creating what I think it's fair to say you think is a pretty bad situation for free speech on campus? What would be the key driver for you, the the most important cause? Gosh, I I really can't answer that question. Uh, or if I offer you an opinion, uh, the the value you would be getting would be exactly what you're <laughs> saying, which is nothing. Uh, so it's a confluence. Um, it seems to me it's a confluence of, in many cases, sort of structural features of the age, right? The, technological revolution behind social media, perhaps intellectual currents that have been going on for decades. It seems like it's kind of a difficult thing to change. That's kind of where I wanted to get at is what are the chances for changing this and improving this uh, condition? I'll talk about that in a second. I, I do have some ideas there, actually. But the problem of intellectual conformism is ancient. You know, Socrates got into trouble because he questioned the orthodoxy. He questioned the established dogmas. What was he accused of? Denying the gods of the city and corrupting the youth of Athens. Well, it's something I've been doing for 39 years, denying the gods of the city and corrupting the youth of Athens. So far, I haven't been forced to drink the hemlock, but who knows? If we think about it in the historical context, we realize that there's nothing new here. There are always dangers, and and Mill recognized this, there are always dangers of conformism, of groupthink. Now, what's the antidote to that? Well, a couple of things. And here's where I said I have some ideas. Number one, we need we need examples. We need models. We need people who boldly speak their, their minds and question established orthodoxies when they have reason to question those orthodoxies. People who aren't afraid. I often say to my students, I've got some bad news and some good news. The bad news is that cowardice is contagious. If people see other people behaving in a cowardly manner, cowering in the corner, not speaking their minds, they will do that too. The good news is that courage is contagious. And if people see people courageously speaking their minds, that's inspiring. And that will cause people to want to emulate that too. So we need some bold people who are willing to be first, set the example. And I think others will then be inspired by it and and rise up. I also think that we're never going to have an effective barrier to groupthink unless we have at least some significant measure of diversity of viewpoint represented on college and university faculties. There need to be faculty members who disagree, and not just at the margins and not just on the trivial and superficial or more minor stuff. But on big issues, on important issues, in in any field, whether it's economics, international relations, sociology, history, even in the sciences where there are controversies, where there are differences of opinion, where things are not clear, having the different points of view represented, I think, stimulates genuine education. That's how students really learn. And of course, it advances the cause of knowledge in terms of research as well, when there's a conflict of, of opinions there and people are able to engage each other across the lines of disagreement, ideally in a in a cordial and uh, civil, respectful way. I mean, it doesn't help when people are just shouting at each other and calling each other names. But if you have genuine diversity of opinion on campus, you are more likely to have actual civil discourse. It won't be a shock to people when they are disagreed with. The problem today 
is that when people on campus are disagreed with and when a dissenter suddenly shows up, it's a big shock. And the guy seems outrageous and he seems to be a bad person because he's questioning our values and what we all believe. And of course, we suppose that what we believe is genuinely humane and deeply true and profoundly just and so forth and so on. So people don't like it when Socrates shows up and starts questioning the gods of the city and starts corrupting the youth of Athens. I think it would be better, safer, push the mission of the university along more efficiently if we did have a broader diversity of views uh, represented in our colleges and universities across the arts and sciences. College admissions uh, seem to be declining structurally across the country. I read reports of up to sort of 5% reductions year on year, which, you know, you take those for a few years, it's a significant drop. Do you think that in some ways, universities might play a role in saving themselves by having more viewpoint diversity and making campus a more vibrant, interesting place to be. And maybe they can they can help push back against this trend towards declining enrollments. Or do you think that's uh, maybe asking, hoping for too much? I think it would help. I don't think that's the main problem, but I do think it would help. I think the main problem has more to do with economics and with the question of whether a college education is worth the outrageous cost today. Now, we could get into the questions of why college costs have gone up so much more dramatically than uh, the cost of goods and services generally. But I think the primary factor in people not attending college who might otherwise or in an earlier period have gone to college is that it's not clear to them or their parents uh, that it's worth it. Does that worry you, the consequences for intellectual diversity and free speech on campus? Because you know, it's plausible to think that as more marginal students drop off the university path, as enrollments shrink, that the university becomes more socio-ecologically, ecologi- socio-economically yeah. uh, homogeneous, and therefore people are from more similar backgrounds, they've gone to more similar schools, and so we have even more groupthink. So it could be that this problem gets even worse because of these big uh, economic and demographic changes that are really outside our control. Absolutely right. Fewer and fewer zip codes represented uh, in the student body. Something that has always puzzled me or worried me as someone who's gone to public universities and worked at public universities my entire career is the increasing concentration of faculty recruitment from a very small number of elite private universities. I'd be interested to hear your opinion on that because I know I'm not sure about the statistics for political science, but for economics, it's something like 50% of all faculty are hired from, I don't know, six universities or something. Does Is that something that worries you as well? As, because as enrollments decline, I presume that you know, there's going to be fewer faculty jobs, fewer PhD programs are going to survive at public universities across the country, and even the faculty are going to be even more concentrated from the same intellectual and and university background. Is that something you think about as well? It sounds to me like it's a recipe for the further contraction of the range of viewpoints represented in any particular field. If everybody's coming from the same six graduate programs, I would imagine that you know pretty soon those graduate programs are going to converge ideologically. When I was starting out, when I was a student myself, there was a very big gap between, at least that's we were told, what my understanding was, uh, the understanding was there's a very big gap between the kind of economic theory that was taught at the University of Chicago and the kind that was taught, for example, at MIT. Right. Fresh water versus, water versus salt water. Yeah, yeah. so... 
Friedman represented the University of Chicago, Milton Friedman, and Paul Samuelson represented what was taught at MIT and at Harvard. Right. And that's a genuine difference. That's a big, that's a big difference. I know enough about economics to know that's a big difference. Absolutely. Now, it wasn't as though absolutely everybody at MIT agreed with Samuelson or at Harvard agreed with Samuelson and everybody at Chicago agreed with MIT, but you had different schools of thought represented in institutions that produced large numbers of PhDs and gave them a credential that was valuable in right. the job market. Right. I don't think even in economics, it's like that anymore. That's my sense, that there has been a narrowing of the range of viewpoints. And I think it would help if there were a broader range of universities, including the great uh, flagship state universities that had doctoral programs that were competitive with those at the elite universities like the University of Chicago, MIT, Harvard, and so forth. Right, I agree. And I think that's something that many of our listeners, you know, parents of college age students might not actually appreciate is that although the universities are scattered all over the country, they are in fact drawing their faculty to a large extent from a relatively small pool of PhD candidates at a small number of faculties. And that is going to have effects on the on these disciplines and the way that their kids are taught when they get to university and they may not even appreciate or understand that. So that's something that I That's certainly I right. And it becomes about. a self-perpetuating problem because if you have a, a young man or woman who really is an outstanding student as an undergraduate and aspires to an academic career, realistically, that person is going to look at the graduate options and say, well, there are really only five or six graduate programs that it would make any sense for me to go to for my PhD. Right, which is already because the case. if I go to any outside of that top five or six, I'm not going to have any chance of getting a good job afterwards. So you're concentrating your talent in those same five or six who would then be formed by the professors at that same Five or six. Yep. So I think that as much as I agree with you that the creation of these new schools and institutes across the country certainly is good for intellectual diversity and isn't doing any harm, I think that one aspect of that that's perhaps overlooked is it might be just as important to have graduate programs as it is to have um, undergraduate programs, right? That uh, you have people getting PhDs from a more diverse range of places. You know, we're talking here at uh, the end of November and about a little less than two months ago, there was this uh, horrific attack by Hamas on Israel. And this has led to some really contentious dynamics on campus that are getting a huge amount of public attention. At least in some media outlets, uh, you sort of see opinion pieces saying this has lifted the lid on a lot of the ugly politics on campus. You know, there have been student protests that have explicitly supported some of the violence by the Hamas terrorists against the Israeli civilians, etc., which has been really contentious. How how do you feel about about these protests? Is this is this simply a continuation of a lot of the problems about intellectual conformity, lack of free speech, perhaps a sort of cancel culture type dynamic that you've seen before? Or is this really a sort of a turning point in the way that America views its universities, as some people have portrayed it to be? The first thing I want to say about that is it's very important for everyone's free speech rights on campus to be strictly respected. This is true of the free speech rights of supporters of Israel. This is true of the free speech rights of supporters of the Palestinian cause. It's even true 
of the free speech rights of those who support Hamas. I say this despite my own view that Hamas is a horrific, evil, terrorist organization. Now, to defend free speech rights is not to defend violence or the immediate incitement to the violence. I could I could tell you what I mean by that by reference to the governing Supreme Court case on the First Amendment when it comes to incitement, a 1969 case called Brandenburg against Ohio. If you want me to go into it, I will. I would distinguish genuine free speech rights from the rights to intimidate, threaten, commit violence, engage in genuine harassment. But so long as you haven't crossed the line to that kind of activity, I will be out there in the forefront defending the free speech rights, even of people who I think are advocating horrible things. I mean, I've already mentioned my my defenses of people like Peter Singer and his rights, even though I couldn't disagree with him more about uh, things like um, the killing of not only unborn babies, but newborn babies. Professor Singer famously believes that um, infants, uh, even for some time after birth, are not yet persons, and therefore you do no wrong if a parent decides to kill an infant, even a perfectly healthy, normal uh, infant. I abominate that view. It couldn't be further from my own view, and yet I will certainly defend, absolutely will defend, have defended his right to advocate that against the people who want to punish him or fire him for advocating such a position. Second thing I'll say is, while I had perceived, and this really goes back two decades, I would say, I had perceived a rising problem with anti-Semitism on campus. I'd seen a rising problem, I'm going to be very blunt, with anti-Semitism on the left. Now, this is not to say that everybody on the left is infected with anti-Semitism. That's not true. Most people on the left are not. Most people on the right are not. But I began to perceive that there was genuine anti-Jewish, not just anti-Israeli, anti-Jewish sentiment emerging on the left for quite some time, a couple of decades. But I did not expect to see or hear open expressions of anti-Semitism on campus, genuine hostility to Jews as such. I did not expect to see what we are now seeing. So this is what has taken me by surprise. Not that we have it. I knew it was there. I knew it was latent. I didn't know how deep and widespread it was, how much of it there was. And this is a real problem. The third thing I would say is, far from being shaken in my view, that all non-sectarian universities, that means all state universities and private universities like Princeton or Harvard University of Chicago, uh, those that are not committed to some creed, should adopt the principle of institutional neutrality embodied in the famous Calvin Report of the University of Chicago, which has governed this issue at Chicago since the 1960s when the report was issued. It was chaired by the person it's named for, Harry Calvin, who was a law professor at the University of Chicago, a very distinguished one in those days. And basically that says that neither the university nor individual units or subunits of the university should take positions on moral and political issues. The university should function as an impartial forum for the civil advocacy of different points of view without putting its own thumb on the scales. Now, very few universities follow the University of Chicago model, to my regret. And universities and subunits of universities have been making all sorts of statements about all sorts of political issues that have nothing directly to do with the running of the university. 
quite some time. I've opposed it. I opposed it here at Princeton. I've opposed it wherever it's been, but it has been going on. Statements about the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict or statements about the Supreme Court's decisions on abortion or statements about the Ukraine war. Why do you think um, they have started taking such political positions, the universities? Uh, it seems to have – they haven't always done this. Well, it, 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 they really got out of control. And Once now you start suddenly, taking positions on one thing, then you're expected to take positions on another and it kind of snowballs. Exactly what's happened. It's mm. exactly what's happened. So now, having taken positions on Kyle Rittenhouse and the Dobbs decision and Ukraine war and everything else, when there was no condemnation or only a tepid condemnation of Hamas, or from the other perspective, when there was a condemnation of uh, Hamas but not a condemnation of Israel's response, then the university begins to look, at least from their perspectives, very hypocritical. It would be better if we just had a principle, as the University of Chicago does, that we're going to provide as a university the forum for debate. We're not going to ourselves as an institution enter into the debate. So this third thing I want to say in response to your question is now is the moment for universities, non-sectarian universities across the board to embrace the Calvin Report principle of institutional neutrality. They will look hypocritical. Those who have been putting out statements for many years now, they will look hypocritical for suddenly doing it. But I think they they should nevertheless do the right thing. If doing the right thing makes you look hypocritical, if it makes you hypocritical, you should suffer that and suffer that reputation in order to do the right thing. And the right thing is to provide the impartial forum, not to put a thumb on the scales. It might also save them a tremendous amount of grief in the future if they take the short-term cost of looking hypocritical now. They will save them poten- themselves potentially a lot of grief in the future of being expected to take positions and they can spare themselves that. No, I wish they would do it for the right reason, which is institutional neutrality supports and facilitates freedom of speech, which is necessary for the university to pursue its truth-seeking, knowledge-advancing mission. That's the reason I'd like them to do it. But they could also just do it out of pure expediency. They could do it out of expediency, and I'll take the deal. Sometimes these things do align. There's the political economist in the room. (laughs) Show me the incentive. People respond to incentives, people in your field. Yeah, exactly. People can integrate under the utility curve through time. They don't have to make the decision in one point of time. We're, We're kind of nearing the end of our time, Professor George, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. I have a couple more questions. The first is, if you think that, Free speech and civil discourse and the ability to debate, especially contentious topics, is declining at universities and has been, it seems from your perspective, for quite a while. Do you think the same thing is happening in American society at large? I mean, we just had Thanksgiving weekend. Everybody went home and saw their families. I'm uh, from overseas, so I was invited to my neighbor's house for Thanksgiving dinner. It was very nice. We all went over there people from our neighborhood with i know everyone really well everyone has very divergent political opinions about all sorts of different issues but we all had a great time we had a great dinner we had some drinks we had some laughs and then everyone went home and it was fine we didn't necessarily have really contentious political debates but there was a little bit of discussion of current events and public affairs and things and all was well do you think that the universities are kind of the problem child of American society here and everyone else is getting along just fine. It's just us people who are on the on campus who have got the problem. Well, you attended that Thanksgiving dinner in November of 2023. Right. I hope they invite you back in November <laughs> of 2024. <laughs> <laughs> These people have been inviting me back for years, Professor George. If they objected to me so strongly, they would have 
ghosted me by now, to use a newfangled term. If they, uh, if they invite you back in November 24 and you go, I fear you will have a very different experience. At that point, we will just have had an election. Right, of course. We might not know who the president of the United States is. Right. <laughs> Even on the fourth Thursday of the elect of uh, November. Tensions uh, might is, be uh, running high. Yeah, tensions maybe might be running high, yeah. Yes. So I, I wouldn't generalize from the experience that you uh, that you just had. I think probably the situation in universities is for civil discourse is worse than it is in the country generally, but it's not great in the country generally by any means. The universities are a more extreme situation in part because there's just more of a monoculture. I mean, America is America and it's really diverse. And there's, you know, the, the Trump supporters and the Biden supporters and the Cornell West supporters and the Robert F. Kennedy supporters and the Jill Stein supporters. And there are lots of different perspectives. There are there. lots of perspectives. I went to the Scottsdale dog show this weekend as well with my son. And I can tell you the people at the Scottsdale dog show are a very diverse group of people. And I wouldn't even begin to imagine what their political views are. Yeah, that's a good point. But I'll bet you could predict nine out of 10 times what a Harvard faculty member's political party affiliation is. Well, the statistics on that front are pretty clear, yeah. <laughs> They're pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, don't take that bet if they, you know, don't take that bet on them not being a Democrat. Yep. The trouble is, of course, what goes on in the universities does filter out. Um, you know, it affects what goes on in the schools and it affects what goes on in journalism and it affects what goes on in philanthropy and it affects what goes on in, in the corporate boardroom. I mean, the phenomenon of woke capital, you know, would not exist were it not for what's going on and has been going on for some time in, um, in universities. So I think the reform of universities is really an important matter. And especially when it comes to issues such as free speech and viewpoint diversity, the reform of universities really, it's an urgent cultural exigency. Yeah, and I can see why you feel so strongly about it and why you've devoted so much time to it over the years. So I will conclude with the same question that I ask all of our guests, which is, do you have a recommendation for our listeners for a book or a podcast or a film or anything really on the topic of um, free speech, civil discourse, intellectual pluralism that you'd like to get out there? Uh, here I'd like to mention uh, three organizations that I mentioned earlier, and I'd like people to get to know them. Go to their websites and get to know them, get to know the work they do on free speech and on civil discourse. The first is the Academic Freedom Alliance, which I had the honor of being one of the founders of. It's doing really important work in defending free speech on campus, especially for university faculty members. Secondly, the Heterodox Academy. This was founded by the great uh, social psychologist at uh, New York University, John John Haidt. It's uh, now led by uh, John Tomasi, former professor of political theory at Brown University. They go by HXA, and they have a wonderful motto. Their motto at the Heterodox Academy is, great minds do not all think alike. And that's absolutely true. But we need to recover that little bit of wisdom and stop imagining that great minds are always going to come to the same conclusions. They don't. So get to know Heterodox Academy. And then third, the Foundation for Individual Rights in, uh, well, formerly known as the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Now it's known as uh, Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. They do great work defending not only faculty members uh, who are under fire for free speech or who, who whose free speech rights have been violated. They defend students and university staff uh, as well. And all three of these organizations, by the way, are worthy of, of your support, your financial and moral support as well. So get to know them. Go to their websites, please. 
Well, that's great. Thank you very much, Professor George, and thank you very much for joining the Keeping It Civil podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. 